There's an inside joke among Bible scholars that the story of Noah and the flood is not suitable for children, yet we teach it to them over and over in Sunday school classrooms around the world. We teach them about the animals going in two by two and the end of the story, the beautiful rainbow. But we kind of skip over, for their sake, this part about God's righteous wrath, the waters of judgment that will wipe out every living thing. In fact, most pastors shy away from preaching this at all because you have to actually read the text, and it's kind of terrifying to read. We prefer the God of the New Testament instead of all this judgment and anger. So I was thinking about that as I was preparing to preach this text to you. I was thinking about judgment and anger, and I was looking around at our culture. I was looking around. Everywhere I looked, I saw judgment and anger. Have you noticed this in our culture nowadays? Everybody's mad about something. I saw a bumper sticker that said, if you're not mad, you're not paying attention. (laughs) When did wrath become a virtue? Parents, some parents are always mad at their kids. Other parents are never mad at their precious kids, but they're always mad about coaches and teachers who aren't treating their kids like the princes and princesses that they are. We're mad at each other. People on the the right politically are mad at people on the left and vice versa. It's like we all have this tightly wound bow of anger and we're just looking for a place to aim it and let it go. It's like, what are you mad about? I don't know. I'll tell you when the president tweets. And on the other side of the aisle, what are you mad about? I don't know. I'll tell you when Nancy Pelosi opens her mouth. (laughs) And we're just mad all the time, aren't we? I'm guilty of this myself. This past week, I was going to the hospital to visit somebody who was there. And I was running a little bit late, and the parking lots were full, and my frustration was rising as I couldn't find a place to park. I'm like, Lord, I'm doing your work. Can you offer me a parking spot here? I didn't actually say that. I just thought it would tell a better story if I said that. (laughs) Finally, I see an open space, and I park there, and I get out of my car, and there's this very official-looking woman with a lanyard, and she says, you can't park here. This is a private space. And I was so mad. On the outside, I said, thank you. Have a good day. And on the inside, I was raging. I was so mad. I got in my car, and I moved it. We all have, many of us have this bubbling up anger in us, when I think about that, I find it very interesting then that when we turn to a scripture like Genesis chapter 6, where God is angry, suddenly we're offended. Oh, you believe in this archaic God who gets mad? So we reserve all kinds of wrath and anger and judgment for ourselves, but God isn't allowed to have any. Look what we've done here. We set ourselves in a higher tribunal than the God of the universe. Because the reality is when we see corruption in our culture and we feel mad about it, well, the same is true for God. Corruption upsets God. Let's read about that in verses 11 and 12. Look for the word corrupt. If you have your Bible closed, go ahead and open it up again. Genesis 6, verses 11 and 12. Look at the word corruption. And how often it's used, and I'm going to define it for us once we've read these verses. It says this, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now whenever the Bible 
says something three times in a row like that. It's like putting an exclamation point on it. It wants us to pay attention to it. So I did a little research this week in the Hebrew. The Hebrew in this text shows us a lot of things, and I'm going to point a few of them out. And one of them is the Hebrew word for corrupt that we've translated here as corrupt. We can learn a lot about the story if we look at that word. You can literally translate the Hebrew word in two ways. The first one is that you could just say filthy. God looked at the world and behold, it was filthy. And if we contrast that to the text we looked at two Sundays ago, Genesis chapter 1, where God created everything in the heavens and the earth and everything that he created, he looked at it and he said, this is good. And then he created humanity and he said, this is very good. There's a pristine beauty that just shines in creation. And now God looks again and, and he sees it's filthy. What he created as perfect and good and whole is now filthy. It's corrupt. And the other way of literally translating that Hebrew word, which I find even more interesting and fascinating, is that you could translate it simply as to turn. God looks at the earth he created and it's turned. And that reminds me of what we saw last Sunday in Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve, he created them. They were walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day. They were seeing him face to face. They had intimate connection with God. And then they chose to be their own gods. They chose to disobey the one rule that God had given them. And in their shame, they turned and they ran into the trees. And all God wanted for them was for them to turn back and face him. So Adam and Eve disappointed God in this way with the corruption of their hearts that they had turned away. And now just a couple of generations later, the whole world is the same. God looks at all the descendants of Adam and Eve and he sees in their corruption, in their filth, that they have turned away. And this breaks the heart of God. In fact, it says in verse 6, which we didn't read today, it says that it grieved God to his heart when he saw the corruption on earth. That helps explain a little bit the judgment and the anger and the wrath that he's feeling. It's actually equivalent to the love that he has, you see. He created us to be in loving, harmonious relationship with him, and in our corruption and our sin, we become filthy and we turn away, and it grieves him to his heart. And he just wants to be with us. He wants us to turn back. And so he's upset about the corruption, about the sin that has entered our hearts that has caused us to turn away from him. Think of a father who's just learned that his precious daughter has cancer. Wouldn't that father be angry about the cancer? Wouldn't that father want to do anything he could to get that cancer out of her body? You see, the wrath of the father is equivalent to the love for his daughter. If he didn't love his daughter at all, if he didn't care about her, he wouldn't care if she got cancer. But out of his love, he's angry about the corruption. This is the picture that we have of God here. God looks at the whole world and its corruption and its filth and its turning away from him, and he's mad about it. And he'll do anything he can to eradicate the corruption because ultimately, God's love means that he longs just to be with us. He longs to be with us. That's why he created us, so we could be in harmonious, loving relationship with him. And this corruption separates from us from him. He longs to be with us. And he sees all these people who stopped walking with him, like Adam and Eve had done. And they've become 
corrupt. But he sees in Noah an exception. Look at verse 9, Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And then look at this phrase. Noah walked with God. Oh, how much this must have delighted God's heart. Not since Adam and Eve did he get to walk with one of the people he created. He looks down at the whole world. Everyone's turned away. Everyone's run into the trees of corruption and sin and shame. And here's an exception. Here's Noah. Noah, you'll walk with me. This is all that God wants. So he looks at Noah and he says, here's one I can work with. And he gives Noah instructions. And look at what Noah does in verse 22, which is the very end after all the instructions. I love this. It says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. You see the difference there between Noah and Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve had one rule. That's it. They had one rule, and they chose to break it. They chose to be their own gods. It says in Genesis 3 that they wanted to be like God. So they broke the one rule. They'd rather call the shots. They'd rather set the standard. They'd rather do it their own way. And here's Noah. He's such a boy scout. He says, God, tell me what to do, and I'll do it. And he walks with God. God sees an exception in Noah. And we just want to point one thing out about this relationship God had with Noah. We notice that Noah follows all the rules he's given, which we're going to look at here in just a minute. But it's out of the overflow, it's out of the abundance of his relationship with God. It comes in that order. It says he walked with God, and then it says he obeyed God. Sometimes we think God just wants robots to obey him. No, God wants relationship with us, just like Noah gave him. He walked with God, and out of the the abundance of that relationship with God, he was obedient to God. So God finds in Noah this exception, someone who will actually follow the rules. And so he gives him some pretty specific rules. Starting in verse 14, God says, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark. Finish it to a cubit above. Set the door of the ark in its side. Make with it lower, second, and third decks. Very specific blueprints. God is back in his right place. God is calling the shots. God is the architect. Whereas in Genesis chapter 1, God is speaking and the sun, moon, and stars and the earth are coming into formation with his very word. Now he's back in a similar position and he's giving architectural drawings and Noah is in his obedience, is making those things come to life. But I wonder if Noah thought maybe he didn't get all the instructions. Because I'll be honest with you, if I'm Noah in this situation and I get all these very specific instructions, very specific measurements, first, second, third deck, cubits, all these things, I might have said, hey God, was there something missing on here? Because you're telling me to build this boat but you didn't mention a rudder or a captain's wheel or even a sail. God, how am I going to steer this thing? None of those instructions are in there. Why? God would make this boat go wherever God wanted to. Noah's job was to follow the instructions, to take care of his family and the animals on the ark, not to steer the thing. Now, this morning, I was praying through the pews, as I do every Sunday morning, praying for you, praying for God's presence here among us. 
And God made it very clear to me as I was praying that maybe this, maybe this little detail in the whole story is all some of you need to hear this morning. That there's no captain's wheel on the ark. And that when you climb aboard the vessel of God's saving plan, you're not in control. Lord, bring to mind areas in our lives where our human grip is, is holding on in a place where you, O oh God, are supposed to be in charge. See, just like Adam and Eve, who wanted to call the shots, who wanted to set their own destiny, I'm a little bit like that myself, and if God gave me these instructions, I would wonder how I'm going to steer the thing. Same thing with my life, when God gives me provision, when God gives me a calling or a plan or a future, sometimes I think, thanks God, I'll take it from here. No. When he's in control, he's in control. Are we ready to let God be God? Now, I could just conclude the sermon right here, and I could say, are you more like Noah, or are you more like Adam and Eve? Go be more like Noah. I could end the sermon right there, and we could all go try to let go and let God. But if I know my own heart, I know yours a little bit as well, and I know our tendency to be a little bit more like Adam and Eve every day, to want to call the shots, to want to be our own gods, which is why I love the main message that just shines through this story, which is that for people like you and me, for Adams and Eves like us, God makes a way. He always makes a way. He makes a way, a way of safety, a way of salvation, a way of grace, a way of safety from the righteous wrath of God, interestingly. He always makes, he made a way here for Noah and his family, the safest place in all the earth to be was on that boat where they weren't in control. That was the safest place for them to be. God made an ark of safety for them. The word in Hebrew for ark is used in one other place in Scripture. Does anyone know? Bible scholars, Bevy knows. The little basket that they placed baby Moses in. Another little ark of safety. God made a way for God's people there as well. Talk about corruption. God's people were slaves. Slavery is a corruption of the order of the way things are supposed to work in the world. And God provided another ark. He sent Moses and he led God's people through the ten plagues safely out from under the wrath of God once again. And he led them across the Red Sea. God makes a way. He always does. And the safest place to be in all the world was following Moses wherever he was leading the charge. God would make another ark, the Ark of the Covenant and the temple system, another place of safety from the wrath of God where people would impute their own sins onto animals, onto lambs, and they would sacrifice the lamb so that the lamb would die instead of them. God made a way through the sacrificial system. God has made a way for you and for me as well. And he begins to even write that story way back here in Genesis chapter 6. He gives them a promise. And that promise points to the way that you and I can find for safety from the wrath of God. Remember at the beginning of the sermon when I talked about how some of us have that, that bow of wrath strung up all the time? 
And then we looked at God's righteous wrath, like the love of a father for a daughter with cancer. And he sends the flood here in this story. It's like him unleashing that bow. But let's look at the end of the story. Go ahead and flip over to Genesis chapter 9, verse 11. I want you to look at, God, at what God does with his bow. Genesis 9, verse 11. This is after the waters have subsided. Noah and his family are establishing a new order. And it says this, starting in verse 11. I, God, establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations, that includes us, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. I want to look at the Hebrew one more time. When you look up the Hebrew word in this verse for bow, you might expect to see the word rainbow. It's actually war bow. This is the bow of God's righteous wrath. Look what he did with it. He, he had it strung up like this, and in his righteousness, in the anger of a father, of a daughter who has cancer, he could have unleashed it once again on us, but he said, I'm going to take my bow, and I'm going to hang it in the clouds. And where is it aiming now? Where is that war bow aiming? Right into the heart of heaven. God looks at all of us and all of our corruption, all of our filth, all the ways that we've turned away, all the ways that we choose to be God, even though he is God. Instead of unleashing his righteous wrath upon us, he says, I love them so much. I want to make a way. I want to provide a way for them. So he unleashed his wrath on his self, on his very own son in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what happened on the cross. We sing it in that song, and on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. In the story of Noah, the safest place to be was on that boat. In the story of Moses, the safest place to be was following him into the promised land. In the time of the temple, the safest place to be was in that sacrificial system. And for us, what we cling to, our vessel of safety is this cross. That's our way out. And whenever we see the rainbow in the sky, we can be reminded of that. That his wrath was unleashed, not on us. Some years ago, I was on Martha's Vineyard with some students with a ministry called Focus. And I was in this little cabin right in the middle of the property, and there was a bunch of middle school kids out on the deck, right out on the other side of the window, where I was, and they were making all kinds of noise. You ever hung around middle schoolers in the summer? They make a lot of noise. Lots and lots of noise. But all of a sudden, I noticed a hush came over all of them. And I noticed right when the hush came over them that the light from the window streaming in had changed a little bit. I was really curious what made them all so quiet. So I walked out onto the deck, and they were all just standing there looking up at the sky like this. And it was the most vivid, beautiful rainbow any of us had ever seen. And there was a holy reverence among those energetic bodies. And I entered into it. We were all just awestruck in wonder. 
What I love about that moment is it was peace that fell over us. You could say it was just because we were looking at something beautiful. But I wonder if God was showing us the peace that he gives us because of the cross. That's so funny. The screensaver just turned on. Did that just happen right as I was talking about the rainbow? How long has that been up there since the rainbow? God has created something so more beautiful than the engineers at Apple could ever dream of. I'm like, why is nobody looking at me anymore? I want us to rest in the beauty of the rainbow, but more importantly, the grace that we've been given because of the cross. He hung up his bow, and he unleashed it on his very own son so that we could behold the beauty of grace and have a way out. He's provided a way for corrupt sinners like you and me. Let's cling to that. Let's hop aboard that vessel, relinquishing our control and trusting him. Amen.